Welcome, everyone. You are listening to the LifePoint Christian Church Podcast. Let's get started. If I were to ask you to write a story involving three characters, a dragon, a woman, and a child, and it must involve a war, what would you come up with? So I want you, as I'm talking this morning, to work on your story, turn it in to me afterwards, and I'll grade your results. No. You hear that and you think, oh, that kind of sounds like Game of Thrones or, or House of Dragons, right? No, no, no. Uh, those, are, those are fantasy. And those are, while those are fantasy, there is, in fact, a true story that involves a dragon, a woman, and a child. They are part of a war. It's an invisible war that you and I don't see. And the dragon and the woman and the child are the main characters in this cosmic invisible war. That's what we're going to talk about today in Revelation chapter 12. Scripture tells us that this invisible world, this invisible realm, there exists God and angels and fallen angels that we call demons. It's where they live and move and and where they are functioning. And where that story gets interesting is that there is this angel who was a fallen angel, and his name's Lucifer. Uh, We might know him as Satan or the dragon, and he tried to pervert God's paradise of heaven. And so God kicked him out of heaven, and Satan managed, Lucifer managed to convince a third of the angels to join his mutiny. He was consigned by God to to earth, even though he still had access to heaven. And ever since then, he has been trying to pervert the paradise of this planet ever since creation. He essentially has drug all of humanity into the, his, into the crosshairs of this giant cosmic battle or conflict that is taking place. You see, Revelation chapter 12 is really a panorama of this battle. And it's going to take us all the way back to the fall of Lucifer, Satan, or the devil. And it's going to take us all the way forward to the end of the great tribulation period right before the second coming of Jesus. Revelation chapter 12 is actually the key to you and I understanding all of human history. I don't know if you just caught it, but that was a pretty big statement. Let me say it again. Revelation chapter 12, you understand this, you will understand all of human history. Past, present, and the future. So, I don't know if that grabs your attention. You say, man, I'm kind of interested now. I want to know a little bit more about this cosmic conflict and how that intersects with human history. Hopefully, that grabs your attention. So let's talk about this cosmic conflict. What do you and I need to be aware of? Well, first, the cosmic conflict involves a people or a nation. Now, we're going to pick up Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. Remember, in Revelation, the apostle John has been caught up to heaven. And in heaven, God has been showing him the events that occur during the last days of the tribulation period leading up to the second coming of Christ. And, and at times we get pauses in that story and God gives us a little more or a little more glimpse uh, of, of items that surround the last days. And this is one of those pauses where we have a glimpse that kind of zooms out for a moment. So we're going to pick up Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. The cosmic uh, conflict involves a people. 
And it says this. It says, a great sign appeared in heaven. Everybody say great. A great sign. Now that word in Greek is actually, literally, the Greek word is mega. So anytime you hear the word mega, you know a Greek word. It is mega. And a mega means large in the widest sense, just like for us. It means grand. It means huge. The word mega is used four times in Revelation chapter 12. Here in verse 1, you have a great sign. You have a great dragon in verse 3. You have great wrath in verse 12. You have a great eagle in verse 14. So everything that John is seeing in Revelation chapter 12, everything is massive, grand, mega. And in verse 1, one of those grand, massive greats is a great sign. Everybody say sign. Okay, so sign, let's talk about that for a moment. A sign is, by definition, a symbol that stands for something else, that stands for something real. So, for example, when you enter the outskirts of Elk Grove, you will drive past a what? You'll drive past a sign. And the sign will say something like, you know, the city of Elk Grove. That small little sign is not the actual city, is it? That sign is not the actual city, nor does it even resemble the city at all. The sign, what does it do? It points to the city. It tells us something about the city. For example, usually on the signs, what's right below the name, what's below it? The population, right? It tells us about the sign, but the sign looks nothing like the city. And all of you are saying, duh. Correct. It's obvious. But here's the problem. People often mistake a biblical sign for the true reality that it represents. And whenever you don't translate a sign properly, you end up setting yourself up to misinterpret the sign and to misinterpret the meaning of the sign. This is true in Revelation or any of Scripture. And so as we open up Revelation chapter 12, we're going to see two signs. And we need to translate those correctly so that we can actually know their meaning so we don't make something up. So with that in mind, let's dive in. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, a great sign appeared in heaven. What was it? It was a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. And she was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. So the first sign in this cosmic conflict we see here is a pregnant woman. Now, since that's the sign, we know the interpretation isn't a literal woman. The woman represents something else, and in fact, so does the child. This woman, by the way, is not the Virgin Mary, as some people have speculated and have tried to make a case for, nor a whole bunch of other interpretations that people have attempted. The best way you can interpret a sign in the Bible is using the Bible itself. It's the best way to interpret any signs. So we see this woman, and she's clothed with the sun, and there's a moon, and there's 12 stars. And so you hear that and say, okay, do I see that imagery anywhere else in the Bible to help me interpret this sign? Only one other place in the Bible this imagery is used. Genesis chapter 37. And there in Genesis 37, you have the young Joseph, and he has a dream. And some of you might know the story. And he goes to his dad, and he says, hey, dad, last night I was dreaming. And in his dreaming, in my dream, there was a sun, and there was a moon, and there were 12 stars, and they were all bowing down to me. 
Joseph's dad, Jacob, then says this to his son, Genesis 37, verse 10. Jacob says to Joseph about the dream, he says, will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down on the ground before you? Now, why is that important what we just read? Because Jacob is interpreting the symbolic meaning of Joseph's dream. And that's the key for you and I unlocking Revelation chapter 12 and its meaning. In Joseph's dream, Jacob said that he, Jacob, his dad was the sun, his wife Rachel was the moon, and his sons, his 12 sons, were the 12 stars. The sons of, we've heard the term, the sons of Jacob, or, or eventually become the 12 tribes of Jacob, or the 12 tribes of Israel. And so now we have a biblical interpretation of what the sun, moon, and stars are. All of that symbolism is a people, a nation. It's the nation of Israel. And in fact, it's very common in the Old Testament to, to refer to Israel as a woman. It's very common to, to refer to her as a mother or a pregnant woman. And so the woman here in Revelation chapter 12, pretty easy to interpret the sign. We can safely say it's a sign, it's a symbol of the nation of Israel. It's a people. Now, as we mentioned last week, and, and in fact multiple weeks, God has his eye on Israel. And Israel plays a part in the last days before the second coming of Jesus. In fact, they play a significant role in end-time events. In fact, the tribulation period, we've talked about it, this final seven-year period right before Jesus comes, it's referred to by the prophet Jeremiah as, as Jacob's trouble or, or, or Israel's trouble. The angel Gabriel said to the prophet Daniel in Je Daniel chapter 9, he said this, he said, a period of 70 sets of seven has been decreed for your people, who are Daniel's people. Well, that's the Jewish people. And it's also been decreed for your holy city. Who are the Jewish people? What is the Jewish people's holy city? Does anybody know? Jerusalem, right? The city of Jerusalem. Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, he's talking to his disciples about the last days, about the end times, about events that happen in this seven-year period of time. And he, Jesus talks about the abomination that causes desolation that takes place in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And here's what Jesus said to his disciples. He said this. He said, said, you need to pray. And you need to pray. And you need to get out of Jerusalem. And you need to pray. And you need to pray that when that happens, when you need to run, when you need to get out of Jerusalem, when you need to flee because of this abomination that causes desolation, we talked about it a little bit last week, when that comes, you pray it doesn't happen on the Sabbath. Jewish language to a Jewish people. Get out of there quick. Run to the mountains. Run to the hills. That's what Jesus was saying. Pray that the event doesn't happen on the Sabbath. So all of it has an eye towards a people, a nation, the people of Israel. Now, has it ever crossed your mind? Have you ever taken the time to think about the Jewish people? Specifically, have you ever wondered, how is it, excuse me, <clears throat> how is it that this tiny little nation of people, that they have a nation today, but for 2,000 years they didn't have a place. So say it this way. How is it that this tiny group of people scattered throughout the world, how have they been so hassled, oppressed, and opposed, and attacked more than any other group of people in history? How has that happened and they actually still exist? Have you ever wondered that? How has all of that happened and they still have survived? 
you go all the way back to the Assyri- pre-Jesus, you have the Assyrians and the Persians and the Babylonians and the Greeks, and then at the time of Jesus, you had the Romans, and then the Romans, Jesus even prophesied pretty soon, they're going to destroy the city of Jerusalem and the temple. And Jesus was right on in his prophecy, 70 AD, the Romans destroyed the city. And, and historians tell us they, the, the Romans killed about 1.6 million Jews at that time. In 135 AD, Hadrian, the emperor, comes along. He basically does the same thing and and kills more millions of Jews. Every generation since then has seen different massacres of the Jewish people. That has led up even to the, you know, this last century, World War II. Over six million Jews exterminated. But by a true miracle of God, This group of people that has existed, a people with no homeland since 70 AD when they were destroyed by the Romans, just scattered throughout the world, suffering persecution wherever they live. How is it possible that this group of people, then eventually on May 14th, 1948, actually got a homeland again, a country, a nation? It's the miracle of God. And so now they exist with a country about the size of New Jersey in what was called the land of Palestine, what we would call biblical Judea or Samaria. How? How could a group so hassled, so oppressed, so opposed by the entire world, how could they exist today? Well, the answer is simple. God made special and unique promises and covenants to the Jewish people, declaring them to be his people. And God has not given up on them, nor will he give up on them. In the late 19th century, Queen Victoria of England was talking to her prime minister at the time, Benjamin Disraeli. That name, you can guess what nationality he was. And the queen said to him, what evidence, Mr. Prime Minister, can you give me for the existence of God? Imagine somebody you work with coming up to you and saying, hey, what evidence can you give me for the existence of God? What would you say to him? Here was his answer. What what evidence can you give me, Mr. Prime Minister, to the existence of God? And he says this, the Jews, your majesty, the Jews, the Jews still exist. And they're central to God's purpose and God's plan. They are the proof that God exists. So you have this cosmic conflict, and it involves a people, a nation, the people of Israel, the people of God, the people that he loves, and they are still part of his plan. But next in this cosmic conflict, it also involves a dragon. Everybody say dragon. So you have a dragon. Let's pick it up. Revelation 12, verse 3. It says this, then another, what's the word? Another what? Another sign appeared in heaven. Okay, let's see what this sign is. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. And its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. All right, there's a lot there. First of all, what's this dragon? It says it's a sign. So what is the dragon? Let's go to the Old Testament and check it out. Actually, you don't even need to do that. You just fast forward a few verses. You get the interpretation. Verse 9, the great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent 
called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He is hurled to the earth and his angels with him. So you get the interpretation right here of what this dragon is. It's the devil. It's Satan. Along with his, with these angels, his angels, these fallen angels. Now to be clear, the dragon is a sign, a symbol of something else, of the devil. So what we're looking at in this passage, we're not looking at a physical description of the devil here. It's a moral description Speaking of his character, his vile character. Now, why would that even matter? Why, why even take a moment to bring it up? Because the whole idea of a, you know, a little red devil in a little red suit with pitchforks and horns on its head and, and a tail, it all comes right here from Revelation. And over the centuries, people, rational thinking people have determined like, you're telling me there's something that's like got a tail and horns and, and in a little red suit and breathes out fire out of his mouth? You're telling me that thing's real? Give me a break. There's no such thing as a literal devil. Why have people gone that route? Because people have misinterpreted the Scripture. Uh, the polls tell us uh, in America, every time they're taken, a lot of people believe in God. Very few people believe in a literal devil. And by the way, he's good with that. That allows him to do his work more effectively. Let's check out this dragon's description. Again, he has seven heads and ten horns. He's one ugly dragon, right? <laughs> but what does all that mean? Okay, let's try to interpret it a little bit. As I've mentioned before, the number seven is an important number in Scripture, and especially in Revelation. And the number seven is significant in a sense that it speaks of what? What does seven speak of? It speaks of totality. It speaks of completion. Just as seven days make up a total or complete week, just as seven notes make up a total or complete scale, so the idea of seven heads speaks of this total or complete or comprehensive character of this dragon. We're going to talk about some more of that character or characteristics of that dragon in coming weeks. But I've just for our purposes here in this passage, one of his characteristics... One of his characteristics is his intelligence. Have you ever thought about it this way? Satan's IQ is off the charts. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, he is brilliant. Because wouldn't you have to be intelligent and brilliant beyond belief in order to convince one-third of the angels to mutiny against God? The God that they see in their presence? You've got to be pretty intelligent to pull that off. So I say that for you to keep this in mind, because the passage says one-third of the angels fell, but also for you to keep this in mind. He knows your weak points. He knows your weaknesses. And he's intelligent. And he knows how to customize sin just for you. He knows how to customize temptation just for you to get in there, to get you to be deceived. And one of the things we discover that in the last days, there's a lot of deception that takes place. And Scripture makes it clear. Do not be deceived, believers. Do not be deceived. So we need to be aware of the schemes and the strategies of the devil and the ways in which he tries to deceive us. And for us to think that he's not trying to deceive us, the Bible says... Be careful lest you fall. Be careful. 
All right, so, so you have these seven heads, and you also have ten horns. What are the ten horns? So he has this, this complete package of who he is and his characteristics. You have ten horns. What are those for an animal? Horns are, are an animal's strength. It's their weapon, so to speak. And so Satan here, we know he has strength. We know that he has dominated the world. We know he has authority over the world. In fact, he's called in 2 Corinthians the God of this world. You'll notice that he has in the passage there in Revelation 12, he has crowns on his head. What does that mean, he has crowns? Well, that, mean, that speaks of, 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 of power, of authority. He's been coronated. He has power, and he's, that power, he yields that over others. And we know in the last days that he will yield that power through his false Jesus, his false Messiah, who we call the Antichrist, and he will yield his version of power through him. So he has power. He's complete, and and we're going to get into some of those characteristics in, in upcoming weeks. But scholars also add an additional interpretation to this. Remember, we've talked about this, that, that sometimes you can have something that has a, a symbolic meaning, but sometimes in Scripture you also see there's a literal meaning. Jesus was literally born, a vir- uh, from, come from a virgin. It was a virgin birth. Jesus literally died on a cross. And so many other passages about the first coming of Jesus that were literal interpretations but also had symbolic meaning. And so we know also that there is also a literalness. So some people that look at this passage and say there's, it's both and. And the literal part, they will say, you combine that with Daniel chapter 7 and dive deep into Daniel 7. Maybe you would do that this week. And in verse 3, when it says, uh, Revelation 12, there's an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. They take Daniel 7 and some other passages and they paint the picture of in the last days that there are going to be seven kings who will have authority over the world. At one point there was ten, they whittled down to seven. And that they are going to have authority, they're going to be broken up into ten kingdoms, ten conglomerations, if you will, across the world. And because these, these, this crown is on Satan, they're on the dragon, because the, the, you know, the, thor- the, the horns are on the dragon and the heads are on the dragon, the whole idea is that Satan's in control of these leaders, of these conglomerations, of these world powers or these world empires or whatever they are specifically. But he is going to be in control of those. And again, we're going to talk about in the upcoming weeks about what happens geopolitically in the world in the last days, in the last three and a half years before Jesus returns. And so you have this woman who symbolizes, who represents a people, a nation, Israel. We have this dragon who is none other than the devil himself. And then we have next in this cosmic conflict, there's a child. And, and, and this child is under attack. Let's look at Revelation chapter 12, verse 4. It says this, it says, the dragon stood in front of a woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child. Everybody say child. Child. The moment he was born, she gave birth to a son, a male child. So this dragon, Satan, the devil, hates this woman, Israel. Why? Sometimes in Scripture you get an interpretation of a sign, right? And other times you get some literal, literalness. Now we're not looking so much at a sign, and now we get a little more literal here. And I don't have time to go through all the Scriptures that point out how we can prove that this is literal. I'll give you one in a moment. But, because, but this battle of Satan against Israel is all about this child. 
In fact, Satan has done everything he can to make sure the child would never be born. Why? Because as we're going to see in a moment, this child would one day rule and reign and take away Satan's authority and Satan's power. In fact, I'll give you, again, I don't have time to go through enough scripture to kind of prove my point. You're going to kind of have to take a little bit at face value. But let me just give you one that we know this is a literal child. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, you all know the passage. A bunch of you have it memorized. You may not know that it was Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, but you hear it every single December. Every, every December. And it goes like this. For unto us a what? Child's born. You know the passage, right? To us a son is given, and the government will what? The government will be on his shoulders. We hear that every Christmas. Talking about the child who will be born, who will be the king who will reign. And so we know this speaks of Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, the King. Now, Satan not only knew the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9 and many others, Satan was there in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve fell. And the curse was placed upon them. And Satan got to hear the curse which involved him. And God prophesied in Genesis chapter 3, and he said, the seed of a, of, of a woman would crush Satan and his kingdom. A seed of the woman would crush his authority and his power. So let's keep this in mind. Satan's not God. He's not omniscient. So he can't know in advance who this seed would be that would crush his authority and his power. He doesn't know in advance who this Messiah, this Savior, would be. And so ever since the beginning, Genesis chapter 3, Satan has been trying to destroy the seed because he knew that the seed that comes from the woman, the woman, the nation of Israel, he knew that that seed would usurp him and that that seed would rule and reign and take away his power. It's why he is attacked at multiple times throughout history. I'm just going to give you a few examples. There's so many, but let me just give you a few. Genesis chapter 4, we read about Cain killing the righteous Abel, right? And he kills Abel, and thinking maybe this is the seed coming through righteous Abel. So, so I believe, others believe that, you know, he inspired and, and whatever he did uh, to get Cain to kill Abel. In fact, it even says in Scripture, Satan was a murderer from the beginning. Why kill Abel? It's his attempt to destroy the seed. Well, that wasn't the seed. And even though Abel was dead, God had a promise and so he raised up Seth, who continued the godly line. Then you get to Genesis chapter 6. And there we discover that evil is so bad on the earth. Satan has caused evil to pervade the whole earth. God has no choice but to destroy humankind. But he looks and he sees there's one who is righteous, Noah. And he saves him, a total of eight, his family. And so the line that would bring us the seed of the Messiah continued through Noah and his line. You fast forward, you get to Genesis chapter 27. You discover now you have this people, which this nation, Israel, which is going to eventually happen. It gets, now the line starts to narrow. And we discover that Esau tries to kill his brother Jacob. Why Jacob? Because Jacob was his father Isaac's son of promise. You guys might know the story, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. From Jacob, you get the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. So that's where we're going to start heading. 
And so he figures, I can try to get rid of him so we can destroy any possibility of the Messiah coming. You get to the book of Exodus, and you have Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And they're there in Egypt, the Jewish people, a people, right? A group, a nation. And he makes this crazy edict to kill Hebrew or Jewish uh, male child, children, and they're to be killed. He was trying to effectively wipe out the Jewish race to destroy the Jews. You get to the book of 1 Samuel, and over and over and over, some of you know the story, King Saul, like King Saul goes nuts. He goes crazy on multiple occasions trying to kill David. Why? Because David, Saul, his line is not the, is not the line for the future Messiah. It would come through the line of David. The Messiah would come through his lineage. And so he tries to kill him over and over and over. You get to the book of Esther. And a guy by the name of Haman wants to, you know, genocide on every Jew in his kingdom. So many more examples in the Old Testament. Fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus is born. And a ruler named Herod gets word that that the Messiah has been born in Bethlehem. And so he has every male, two years old and younger in Bethlehem, killed. Why? Satan is doing his best to eliminate the seed that would eventually destroy him. You get a hint of this, I think, in the synagogue in, in Nazareth when Jesus went back to his hometown and he preached. And some of you know the story. He preached and he prophesied and people got so upset. What did they try to do? Does anybody know the story? They took him to the brow of the hill and what they want to do. Right? Kick him off. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to destroy him. And it tells us Jesus just passed through him. It's one of the coolest verses in the Bible. Like, you know, but leave me alone. I'm good. The pursuit continues all the way up to one Friday afternoon when Jesus' limp body was taken off of a cross and put in a tomb because he had been crucified. And Satan thought, we've done it. Looks around high-fiving with all of his angels. We've destroyed the male child. We've destroyed the seed. Our power, our authority will remain. But I think Satan missed the fine print. And in the fine print, Jesus made a promise in John chapter 10, verse 18. And Jesus said this about his life. He says, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord, and I have, authority, I have the authority to lay it down. And then here's the, the fine print. He says, I have the authority to lay it down, but I also have the authority to take it up again. And three days later, what did Jesus do? Exactly that. He rose from the dead, and he is alive forevermore. Hallelujah. And so Jesus, uh, excuse me, his, one of his apostles, Peter, a few days later, stands before thousands and he tells everybody, hey, I want all you to know, all you Israelis, because they're in, in Israel, I want you guys to be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, by the way, who you guys, you guys crucified along with the Romans, God's made him both Lord and Messiah, Lord and Savior, Lord, ruler and king. So Satan, having been defeated, The child was born. Having been defeated, he's turned all his wrath and all his fury on Jesus' followers. And so for 2,000 years, Christians have suffered persecution in some way, shape, or form. Not always and not in every country, but we've suffered persecution, and we will continue. But what's interesting to me is Satan didn't give up on the Jewish people. The seed was born. Why bother with them? Why not leave them alone? Why is there still this continual anti-Semitic push even in our world today? 
and it seems to get worse and worse. I even had somebody come up to me after the service and said, uh, over in UC Berkeley, there is literally a no Jewish zone on the campus. There's an area on the Berkeley campus, and there's a Jewish professor. I can't remember his name. He t- this person just told me. He can't even, as a professor on Berkeley, cannot go into that no Jewish zone. Why the anti-Semitic push, push even to this day? Well, it's because God promised redemption for his people, the Jewish people. God promised the Messiah would establish his kingdom in Israel, and he would rule and reign over the world, including ruling over his people from Jerusalem. So if Satan figures, if I can destroy God's people, then they can't be a nation. If there's no nation, there can't be people in Jerusalem. If there can't be Jewish people in Jerusalem, there can't be a Jewish temple. It means God can't keep his promises. It means Satan thwarts God's promises and Satan still has some authority. And that is why Jewish people have suffered for so long under the hands of every country they've ever lived in because Satan is trying to destroy them. And he has been using deception to take unwitting and unknowing people and nations, sadly, including Christians, to do his bidding. You see, the story of the Bible is the story of God working to fulfill his promises of a Messiah for his people, the Jewish people, and for all nations, Gentiles included, while the enemy is doing everything he can to thwart God's plan. A dragon, a woman, a child. It's this cosmic conflict. So how does the cosmic conflict end? That's where we wrap up today. It ends with Christ's rule and reign, with the Messiah's rule and reign. Whatever the conflict is, we get glimpses of it. We don't even know what's going on behind the scenes. Whatever it is, we know this. Satan will lose and Jesus will win. Hallelujah. Jesus wins. So I would only suggest to you, make sure you're on the right side. Just a little FYI. Revelation chapter 12, verse 5. So she... She's, who's the she? A nation of people, Israel, gave birth to a son, a male child, Jesus. He will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Some translations say a rod of iron. And the child was snatched up to heaven to God and to his throne. And so you get kind of the whole, the whole scene right there. Jesus, the male child, the Messiah. And though he was killed, God raised him, resurrected. And he sits at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 6, the woman, again, Israel, fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she will be taken care of for 1,260 days. Don't have time to dive deep into that, but you heard 1,260 if you've been with us in the series. 1,260 days, 42 months. How many years is that? Three and a half years. So we just fast-forwarded right there because, again, we don't have time to look at all the passages. That's what the series is about. We just fast-forward in that little piece to the last three and a half years of the tribulation period, and it says that God's going to take care of the Jewish people in the last three and a half years of the tribulation. So it's fascinating. In six verses, you go from the fall of Satan before creation all the way up to the end of the tribulation in six verses, human history in a half hour. Thank you very much, God. (laughs) But I want us to notice in that verse 
that the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, is going to rule with an iron rod, an iron scepter. What does that mean? Well, iron was the strongest uh, metal to, uh, at that time in the world. It means iron. It represents absolute authority, absolute power. And when Jesus returns, he will be king of kings and lord of lords. He's not going to be voted into office. He just steps in. And he's the king, and he will rule, and he will reign with a rod of iron, absolute authority as Satan and his fallen angels, his demons, will be bound. And we'll talk about that in coming weeks. But here's what's interesting about this word rule that I find fascinating. Maybe you will too. It's the Greek word pomeno. And the word literally means shepherding or to, to shepherd. Jesus will shepherd. His rule, absolute rule. It's the same word used of pastors um, in, in the New Testament, poemen. In Acts chapter, 12, uh, Acts chapter 20, Paul talks to the elders and tells them to shepherd or pomeno the flock of God among you. And so we're getting a glimpse of Jesus' rule, absolute authority, we get to see the tender care of that rule and reign. He's the tender enforcer. He's the gentle warrior. He's the firm shepherd. That's our Savior, our Messiah, our Lord and Savior. And so as I close today, I just want to leave you with an important question. The most important question you could ask in your life, now and forevermore, are you under the rule and the reign of this gentle shepherd? Are you under the rule and reign of Jesus, the Messiah? Is he Lord of your life? Is he Savior of your life? Listen, you have incredible power that God has given you, and that's the power of choice. You can choose him and say yes to him, now or later. If it's later, if you're forced to bow your knee in the end, it's too late. So God invites you today to bow your knee to him. Jesus, the gentle shepherd, the ruler, is he ruling and reigning in your heart? If you're a Christ follower already, I'm going to invite you to spend time with Jesus and pray and just say, God, I want to be right with you. I want to surrender my life to you once again. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, he wants to come into your life and save you and give you eternity. And if you'd like to receive him into your life, I want to give you that opportunity right now. He will save you. He'll forgive you of your sins. He'll give you the hope of heaven. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. You can learn more about us by visiting us online at lifepoint.org. If you are ever in the Sacramento area, we would love to see you in person. Events and service times can be found on our website. Thank you for listening, and we hope you join us for our next episode.